you're out there wondering, doesn't he normally sing and play the guitar? I do. My name is Dustin Rouse. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, but did Parker not do a phenomenal job, the team up here? I mean, <clears throat> it's usually self-serving when I praise the worship team, but I wasn't up there today, so I can do it all I want. Um, they, they are some great people. I cannot tell you uh, how blessed I feel, my wife and I, to serve and do life with every single person at every campus who uh, serves faithfully in our worship ministry. So I'm excited to be up here today, though, and to dig into God's word with you and to talk a little bit about worship, which we just did together, as it is seen in Psalm 150. And so I'm excited to take God's word, which we believe this right here is the authoritative, spirit-inspired word of God, which we want to take and to inform our hearts and to inform our lives and how we should live. And I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed so far our psalm series. Have you? It's been great. I mean, it's called Songs for Sinners, and we haven't talked about singing one time. You know, and I'm a worship leader. I love the book of Psalms, man. It's like sing to the Lord, praise him, exalt his name, raise your hands in the sanctuary, dance for joy. All the things that I love, it talks about. And so I oftentimes, you'll find me at 6.15 in the morning on Sunday mornings in my office with the Psalms open, just reading it into my soul, praying it back to God in a meager effort to try and get my heart ready to worship with you and to lead in worship. And so I think, as you hopefully do as well, that the scriptures should inform our worship. But we haven't talked about singing yet in our psalm series. We've talked about how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and whose delight is in the law of the Lord. We've talked about how the Lord is our shepherd and he takes us through the valley. In fact, he lays a table out in the presence of our enemies. We've talked about how God sees our heart and he loves us the same. We've talked about... Uh, many other things in our series. And today, finally, we get to talk about music. And I'm excited to do that with you. And I don't know uh, if you realize this, and maybe you do, but we are all born worshiping. We're all born worshiping. God made us in a way that our natural tendency, our DNA, the way he's wired us, is that we worship right when we are first born, right? Right? Everything in our hearts is trying to attach itself, to be satisfied, to find fulfillment, to find contentment in other things besides God. Because worship is happening in our lives even before we come to know and walk with Jesus. There are temples all around our city of worship. And I'm not talking about the one on Mississippi just a couple miles from here. I'm talking about the mall on Route 30. I'm talking about the bank accounts on every corner. I'm talking about the cars that we drive in. I'm talking about the houses that we live in. I'm talking about that football stadium in the middle of downtown Chicago for some of us. We're all worshiping something. And all those things are good things. The problem is sin has come in and it has skewed our perspective. It skewed our view on what actually satisfies, which is Jesus alone. See, the thing about worship is this. We don't turn it on and off. It's not a switch for us. Worship is always happening. The thing is, where are we aiming our worship? What I love that God does for us in Jesus and through the gospel is that he takes our worship and he hijacks it and he aims it back at himself. And that's the only place it belongs. 
I'll give you a, a small example of what I'm talking about. When my son was six years old and was in first grade, he uh, started going to school, and within three weeks, he came home. He's like, Dad, I love Minecraft. And I was like, what? Mine what? If you don't know what Minecraft is, you don't have a kid that's like six to eight years old because it was all the rage a couple of years ago. It's basically this video game that you build things on a computer or an iPad or an Xbox, and you make towns, and, uh, you know, he loved it. And so what he would do is he would play that game all the time. He would talk to me about it all the time. And I would just kind of look at him and go, cool, man. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Don't know what you're talking about, but I love talking to you, so keep talking to me about Minecraft. He would go to the library, man. He would check out books on Minecraft. He would get on the computer on iPad and go to YouTube Kids, and he would be like, Minecraft, how do the people, what are they building? What are they doing? He just loved it, man. He loved it. The thing is, you know, was I at that time concerned about Hudson? Was I like, oh no, he's going down the deep, dark path of idolatry. He's a false worshiper. No, not really, because it didn't consume him. He still played outside. He did other things. He was only six years old. And my prayer was that one day Jesus would, in his life, hijack his worship and point at him at Christ through salvation. And I'm pleased to say that I love VBS. It's on the stage starting tomorrow. Pray for it. My kid last year got saved at VBS. And uh, I love that about what we do at this church. So it's not just child care and daycare that we're doing this week. Pray for the ministry that, that we'll be doing uh, through VBS. So he loved it. You know, I wasn't really concerned about it. But at the same time, it, it was a little bit of a microcosm for me to see into his heart. To see really into all of our hearts that we naturally, on our own, nobody taught him how to do this. We love things um, way too much. We attach way too much affection and attention and, and, and glory to things that don't deserve them. We take created things and we worship those above the creator. Anytime something that is good rises above the level of where God should be in our lives, that is false worship. It's idolatry. In fact, someone once said that our hearts are idol factories. Naturally, they make things that we want to bow down to in worship. But the point is this. Christ came and he hijacked our worship and he pointed it back in himself. And so a couple of indicators that might help us even as we're talking through some of these things, even in this introduction, is where are your resources going? Where are our resources going? You can look at our bank account, and sometimes that can be an indicator of what we're worshiping, right? When you're driving down the highway and the radio's not on and you're just kind of in silence driving, what do you naturally go to in your mind? What do you think about the most? What does your mind naturally go to when you're just at rest, that might be an indicator of something that you're worshiping. So the job that we really want, the bank account, the relationship, millions of other things can become idols for us that we worship. Anything that gains our affection or attention above God is what we worship. Conversely, though, when Jesus does get a hold of our life through the power of the gospel and we give our lives fully to him, the job we have now becomes a vehicle that we want to glorify him with and be on mission with him with and that circle of influence. It shifts everything to worship of him instead of worship of what that job gives us. The food that we love becomes a worship experience of praising the creator for the good gifts of his creation. Our families become houses of worship where we try to disciple our kids and point them to Christ and also to serve and lead our spouses in that way as well. 
So worship is way more than music. I think we all know that, but we need to state it. But it's definitely not less than it either. Here's a really short definition that I often use when I'm talking to people about worship um, that I've used for many years. Here's, Here's what it says. Worship is a response to who God is and what God has done. This response is seen in our lives through obedience as well as in our songs when we gather together corporately, right? And even more than our songs, the preaching, communion, anything that we do when we gather is considered worship to him. But it's all of our lives. And what it is, it's a revelation of the glory of God, who he is and what he's done. And for us, it's a response to that of obedience and surrender and worshiping him through music. Here's a fuller definition by a guy named Bob Coughlin. Here's what it says. Worship magnifies the greatness of God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, skillfully combining God's word with music, thereby motivating the gathered church to proclaim the gospel, to cherish God's presence, and to live for God's glory. That's a really good one. It's full, it's weighty, it's heavy, but it's really, really good. What I love about it is that it includes the entire trinity. The entire trinity is at work when we worship. The Father ordained it. Christ made the way through the cross. And the Spirit is moving among us even as we sing to him. And all of this is informed by the scriptures. Motivating us. That's the whole point of music is to motivate and to inspire by attaching truth to music. To inspire the praise of God's people. To draw them in. To engage in a a special way. To proclaim the gospel. To cherish his presence that's among us in a special way. And as always, to live for God's glory. True worship is a response of God hijacking our worship with the gospel and pointing it back at Christ. It's in all of life, but it's also with music that we sing when we gather, which is what Psalm 150 is going to talk about, and I'll get to in just a second. But I would be remiss if I didn't say the obvious before I got into the music aspect of it and didn't say that. We believe firmly what the Bible teaches, which is that worship is all of life. Everything that we do can be done to the glory of God. But today we want to specifically talk about Psalm 150. But because worship is all of life, I just want to point out one small thing before we move into that, which is that I believe actually that Pastor Steve is the real worship pastor of this church. The reason I think that is because he stands right here every week, opens God's word, and points us to the truth of how we can become more like Christ. And the more we become like Christ, the deeper our worship becomes when we gather. So I serve him in my role as worship pastor as he continually tries to exhort and encourage and shape us by the power of the scriptures and the power of the spirit to be deep worshipers of God. So let's read this together. Psalm 150 says this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with string and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So the whole doxology of the psalm, it starts with in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And it ends with what that leads to, the logical conclusion, which is praise the Lord. When we delight in the Lord, it leads us to praise and to worship the Lord. I love verse 1 in Psalm 150. Uh, It says, praise the Lord. It does not say... Hey, if you're in a good mood on Sunday morning and you really feel like it, maybe you should praise me. 
right? It doesn't say, hey, if your favorite worship leaders are up there, if they're singing your favorite songs or whatever, you run down the list of preferences that we have in church. It doesn't say any of those things are the ultimate thing, right? What does it say? Praise the Lord. It's a command for us. It tells us that we should do this. And a command, although we should obey it, I pray, would not be obedience out of drudgery, but it would be obedience out of delight. Because God made us, he made our hearts to worship, and our hearts are made to worship him. So anytime we don't do that and our worship goes elsewhere, it leaves us empty and unsatisfied. Our hearts were made for him and for him alone. So it comes right out and says, not a suggestion, but a command. Praise the Lord. Another psalm says it this way, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. We don't, when we worship God, make things true about him with our songs. They're already true. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name means this, that God within himself is intrinsically, infinitely, on his own, glorious. And what we do is we see it, we behold it, and we respond to it in worship. We don't make it true. It is true. And if we recognize the weight of that truth, we wouldn't be able to do anything but praise the Lord. Revelation and response. God is revealed to us as holy, awesome, perfect, creator, sustainer, redeemer, Lord, king of kings, and Lord of lords. He's the lion of Judah, the lamb of God, the alpha and the omega, the soon and returning king. This is God. Praise the Lord. This particular song was most likely used in liturgically at the opening of a celebrative service for the Jews. And so we have much to celebrate even today, over 2,000 years later. And he starts with that exaltation and celebration. He starts with, let's do this. This is what we're called to do. What does praise mean? I think that's important. Praise means to call attention to his glory, to give thanks, to exalt, to confess. I like the first phrase, call attention to the glory of the Lord. Praise the Lord. We're just kind of saying what's already true about God when we sing songs about him, right? He is glorious. He's like, I know I am. You've made everything, God, yes. He's like, I know. But in that I know, God is delighting in the praises of his people because we see rightly how we should worship. So we see, behold, and we respond. So he tells us to praise him. Then he kind of goes on to say where? Verse 1 still. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So that's where I think there's more context than that, but there's two that he gives us that we want to talk through this morning. You know, and, and growing up for me, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And so uh, my dad had a couple of churches growing up, and we would uh, move occasionally and join different churches. And I remember this one church in particular uh, that took that word sanctuary, which they would, uh, we call our auditorium, which is where we are this morning. And it was just a little bit over the top, you know what I mean? A little bit just too hush, hush about the sanctuary, you know. I would go visit my dad in the middle of the week on a Tuesday at 1030, and he might have to have a quick conversation with somebody, and my brothers and I would be roughhousing in the sanctuary, and they would come up and be like, hey, no running in the sanctuary, you know. Don't be loud in the sanctuary. Like God's sleeping in the sanctuary or something. I, I didn't really get it. 
And I don't think they believed that, but it was just kind of this over the top. I know the essence of what they were saying is God is holy and worthy of our worship and we shouldn't trash our worship spaces. To which I say a hearty amen, right? I believe that. But the truth is God is not contained to this room. The sanctuary points to the church. The church is not these four walls. You know what the church is? You. You're the church. When we gather together as the church in the sanctuary, why do we do that? Why do we do that? By the way, my kids run around this auditorium all the time. (laughs) Confess that to you. My wife sings with me, 6.15 in the morning. They're running around dancing and stuff, and I love it. I think it's great. But we're supposed to praise God in his sanctuary. What what, what, What does that mean, really? What is he getting at there? Well, here's what I think. It's referring to the church. And the church should gather. We need to do this together. The sanctuary is praising God together. Well, why does he tell us to do this? Why do we need to gather together? Why can't we stay in our bedrooms, put our favorite worship music on, watch our favorite preacher on the podcast, and do what we want? Why do we need to gather together? Here's why. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So here we're encouraged to gather. You can't sing to one another if you're not near each other, right? I guess you could over FaceTime, but that's just kind of weird. So gather together and sing. We're encouraged there in Colossians 3. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's the word of Christ there? The word of Christ there is the gospel. What Christ has done for us through the cross and the empty grave. Let that dwell in your heart richly. What does richly mean? All the way. Full run of the house. Not like, hey, God, I'm going to keep this one room under lock and key. You can't have those things, but like the rest of it, cool. You can have that, right? No, he wants it all. That's when our worship is the richest is when that happens. And I think it's important here to, to mention just how important we believe, and I believe that the gospel is to be central to worship. It has to be. If we don't sing about it every week, we have spiritual amnesia, and it helps us get through the week by singing the gospel. But why do we need to do it together? Why do we need to sing about the perfect life and the sacrificial death and the victorious resurrection and the soon return of Jesus? Why do we need to do this? Because although there is a vertical aspect to worship, and we'll get that to that in a second, there is a horizontal one as well. What does Colossians 3 says? It says, sing to one another. Here's the reality every week that we gather. That someone in this room, either themselves or someone they love, has been recently diagnosed with a terminal illness or cancer or some serious health issue. Someone in this room is going through financial hardship. Someone in this room has a wayward child that they just can't reach. People feel dark and they feel lonely and they feel like they're on their own. What is the answer to those things? Jesus. So what do we need to do when we sing together? is to recognize that across the aisle, somebody needs to hear those words come out of your mouth in song. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, three in one. I believe in the resurrection that he will come again. 
Death is not the end. You are not alone. We need each other. So we need to sing songs that matter and say something, exhorting one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We praise him in the sanctuary because we praise him together, saying, I believe this to you. It gives an energy to our spiritual walk. We praise him in the sanctuary to remind ourselves that we're not alone and to express with our other saints the thankfulness we have for the cross and to call attention to the glory of God together in his sanctuary. Secondly, it says, praise him in his mighty heavens. We're joining an ancient song here when we worship, a song that's been sung before the dawn of time. Our worship isn't contained to just this small gathering here on Sunday mornings. Why? Because God's glory is infinite. You can't contain it. You can't measure it. And so what he does is invites the entire universe to join in this song. He, enjoy, he invites the angelic host to sing a song to him because he's worthy of it. I love it, man. I love it. Worship is massive. That's why we can't just sit in our seats and just kind of like, yeah, 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 kind of singing, all right. Cool, I can sit down. Awesome. Thank you. We need to realize the massiveness of what we do when we get to engage in worship, that we, it goes beyond the hour we have on Sundays, that taps into that ancient song of the angels, that God is holy, 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 who was and he is and he is to come. To join in with the song of creation, it says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Stars, galaxy, angels, us, joining together in this mighty symphony of praise to the God who made us. And here's the thing. Even with all of that, the massiveness of that, we could do this forever, which we one day will do in the new heavens and the new earth. And guess what? We'll never be done. We'll never, I don't know what it's going to look like. It's not us on a harp with a, or on a cloud with a harp, like, you know, just singing by ourselves. I think it's going to be amazing. Think of the best worship experience you've ever had in your life. That ain't nothing. But it's coming. And we're going to do it forever. And the thing about it is it's never going to end. Why? Because God's glory is infinite. His mercy, his grace, his love, his power, his might, his justice, his goodness. All he does and all he is has no end to it. And so we could sing forever and never scratch the surface of the glory of God. And this is what our attempt to do is, though, every single week we join in that ancient song. Why is he worthy? There's a little rhetorical question of, like, praise him, here's where, but why? His mighty deeds and his excellent greatness. And what are God's mighty deeds? I mean, we could spend forever talking about this. We could just sit here and, you know, story after story, thing after thing that God has done. But a couple of things for us to consider this morning of God's mighty deeds is that he made everything. Out of nothing. He made literally everything out of nothing. When we make stuff, what do we do? We're like, hey, can I borrow that hammer and I need some wood and nails and concrete? And we build it, right? We borrow things. God didn't look to another universe and go, oh, that's cool. I think I'll take that and put that here and that here. He spoke, and there was a giraffe. I don't know why I picked a giraffe. It just came to my mind. That's a weird-looking animal, right? But he made it. He made all the stars. You know, you ever, you ever go to the beach, my favorite place in the world, by the way? I was there yesterday. It feels like the beach if you don't look left or right. You just kind of look straight out. You know what I'm saying? But at the beach, you know, I love going to the actual beach and uh, the ocean and seeing the sun setting. 
and you just feel incredibly small. But you also see the fingerprints of God all over creation. The beautiful colors in the sunset are just a mere scratch of what it's capable of. You know what Isaiah tells us? Is that he holds all that water like a drop in his hand. This is a mighty deed, wouldn't you say? He flung the stars into the skies and he, he knows them by name. You know, we could look to the covenant promises of his people that he kept to them, how he led them across dry land to the middle of the Red Sea, or how he opened the womb of a woman way past her age for childbearing and kept the lineage going through which Jesus would come. We could look into the protection of his people, but the most acute place where we see the mighty deed of God is a Roman cross and an empty tomb. That is where we see the mighty deed of God, that the Son of Heaven would leave the glories of Heaven, that He would walk amongst us, that He would take our place, He would die, He would rise again, procuring our salvation, and all we have to do is believe. That's a mighty deed. That's something to call attention to. His mighty deeds are what we call attention to in our praise, but it also says, the author says here in Psalm 150, uh, that because of His excellent greatness that we should uh, worship Him. The literal translation of his excellent greatness is the greatness of his greatness. It's kind of a weird way to say it, but it's kind of helpful. It shows just the, uh, the sorry way we have with English language to try and describe things. Like, this greatness is so good. You know what? We're just going to say that the greatness is great. <laughs> it's kind of like going out and, you know, I love chocolate cake. And so if you get a chocolate cake and it's moist, there's an inch of icing. You're like, oh, this is going to be good. I can tell right now. Eat it. And you, you turn to your spouse like, man, that was the chocolatiest chocolate cake I have ever eaten. And they're like, what? That doesn't even make sense. But you know what you're trying to do there, right? You're trying to say, I love chocolate cake, and this is the best chocolate cake I've ever had. It's really, really chocolatey. That's what we do when we describe, ascribe the glory of God, is that we're just saying, God's greatness has greatness. He's worthy of our worship. So he says that we should do it. He says where we should do it. And he says uh, why we should do it or how we should do it or where we should do it. But why should we praise him at all with music? You know, verses 3 through 5, it talks about using a trumpet, uh, using a lute, a harp, strings, a pipe, sounding cymbals, loud clashing cymbals. It even says to dance. Anybody want to try that in the next set we do together singing? Y'all can dance if you'd like to. You probably won't, and that's okay. Um, but we're allowed to. We're free to do it. It says it right here in the psalm. What, what do I think that all these instruments are pointing to? You know, I think, number one, it's pointing to the fact that uh, we should use instruments and praise God through music, number one. Number two, that God delights in a variety of different kinds of instruments, which I think point to different kinds of music. Uh, that we can use. It would have been easier for me as a worship leader, honestly, if he came in there and say, hey, praise the Lord with a kazoo. And that, that's all it said. We would all come here with kazoos and, and we would do it all day long because that's what the Bible says. But luckily, God is uh, way smarter than that and gave us the variety of different kinds of instruments. So let's talk about variety uh, first, just real, real quick. Uh, my read on this is that no one style of music has the corner on worship. Nobody's figured it out. There isn't one style that God loves the most, right? He's not up in heaven going, finally, they got a contemporary worship service going. Man, you know? 
He's not up there going, I wish they would go back to the Gaither days. That was real worship. You know what I'm saying? Right? He is not saying to use only the piano and organ, only the modern rock band, only the sitar, only whatever in the other countries that they use, the, the, the native instruments of their land. He is saying all of it is pleasing to me because I made you. The instruments are just a way, a vehicle to put that praise in, to express it to me. So there, there is no, you know, music is just, it, here's what music is. It's harmony, melody, and rhythm. Nothing inherently evil about those three things. But I'll tell you a couple of examples of how we, uh, we as a church, not us, Bethel, but the church in general in history, has gone a little bit too over the top with this. Um, there was something called a tritone in our cello player. Pat White explained it to me after the last service because I don't really explain it, uh, understand it totally. But it's a weird sounding tone uh, between two notes. And uh, I think it's three full steps maybe. But it just sounds evil, Right? It just sounds bad. And so uh, it, it was discordant. And so the church said, well, we don't think the praise of God should be discordant. And the devil is discordant. So we're going to call the tritone the devil's tone. And we're not going to put it in any of our music because it's evil. The actual notes are evil. And that's not true. I mean, I would just say don't use it because it sounds bad. But uh, they attached evil to it. You know, there's also a time where you know, worship music had this point where there's some beats started getting into the worship, right? And people started moving a little bit, which I would encourage our church. We can move a little bit. I would say to you with love. But they said, if the music makes you move, it's got to be bad. So don't use that. You need to, this is, you know, holy. You just do this. Don't move. Don't you do it. I don't know what they would have done with my eight-year-old because that kid is like playing drums and all. Here's the point. Music in itself is not evil. What we attach to the music can be or cannot be. The lyrics of what we sing should matter to us as a church way more than how we sing it, what instruments we use or don't use in our church. The glory of God is what drives our worship, not the style of music. Nobody's got it all figured out. You know, these instruments here, there's, there are a lot of loud and raucous instruments in this psalm. It's almost like a party. You know, it mentions uh, loud and clashing cymbals, loud clashing cymbals. And I tried to veer from this as a worship leader given, given the sermon on worship, but I just couldn't get away from it. I got to talk about football. Everybody compares football games to worship. They do it all the time, and I wasn't going to do it. But when I read loud clashing cymbals, all I could think of da 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 Go, whoever. You go to a football game, and it's just like loud and celebrative, and there's a band, and they're playing, and people are yelling. They're jumping out of their seats. They're high-fiving. They're, yeah, you know. They're, they're dudes that shouldn't be taking off their shirts or taking off their shirts and writing B-E-A-R-S and standing up in the 32-degree weather. I mean, people go nuts for this stuff, man. And I, I do, too. I mean, I love college football, Florida State. You know, I love all that stuff. It's good. It's okay to cheer for your team. Don't hear me that I'm saying that. But, you know, someone does something good and you basically praise them for it. You're acknowledging the glory of the play they just made and you're going crazy over it. But can I say lovingly, how much better is the salvation of your soul than some sweaty 19-year-old college student running some oblong pigskin across a white line in some grass? I mean... I don't know about you, but if you're a dude in this room, dudes, we should sing. Okay, number one. Number two, if you're going to the football game and you're, yeah, da 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 go, wow. 
And then you come here and you just do this. I don't say that condemningly. I used to be like that. But when we recognize the weight of our sin and the grace that we receive in Christ, we cannot do this. And if you do this naturally in life, and you just, I'm not judging you. I don't like keep a track of who does this in worship. But my point is this. You've been saved and rescued from your sin and the wrath of God. You should respond in worship as if you respond to good news in real life. So if you're a person who engages and gets excited and that sort of thing, and then you come here and you're like, I ain't doing it. I'm going to sip my coffee until the sermon starts, right? It's okay to drink coffee, but, man, I would encourage you because you're missing out. You're missing out on worshiping God because God made us this way, and actually it fulfills us and satisfies us when we give him the glory back. I would encourage you to do that. No kind of music has the lock on what we should do in worship. Secondly, music is a gift, and uh, we should use it. I mean, God gave it to his church, said it right here in Psalm 150, use this, and so we should. Uh, and I, I, here's, here's why I would say we should use music. Uh, it moves us, doesn't it? Music moves us. I mean, you can hear a song when you, when you first met your sweet thing and y'all were dancing, and you hear it 20 years later, and you're like, babe, you remember that, that time they played that song and that thing? You know what I'm talking about? You know? It take, and the husband's like, no, but... Uh, <laughs> It, it takes us back. It has this ability to unlock our memory in a way. It, it moves us uh, in other ways, too. You know, my uh, favorite example that I give often is movies, right? Movies. I mean, how many times have you gone to a movie? It's the same plot over and over again. There's a dude and there's a girl, and they love each other, and somehow they got ripped apart, and he's t- taking the whole movie trying to get back to her, and they finally see each other at the end of the movie, Right? And they see each other across this field or whatever, and he's, like, messed up because he had to fight for her. And they see each other, and they're just like. (laughs) Right? What if you had to watch every scene like that with no music? Awkward. (laughs) It would be just like I just did. (laughs) Awkward. Right, But you put a beautiful score of music behind that, and all of a sudden your wife's crying on your shoulder because that was the most beautiful thing she has ever seen. <laughs> right? Music moves us. It has this ability to move us. You know, I, uh, another example I would give is I, I like to go to concerts in the city, and I like to, to be a part of I love music, obviously, so I go to concerts. And, man, I've been to so many concerts where people, you know, the band starts playing, and they start singing, every single one of them in the room. And a lot of them are terrible singers. I mean, like a foghorn behind me. I'm like, bro, I'm trying to like listen to the concert. Can you tone it down just a little? They sing poorly about things that honestly, at the end of the day, don't ultimately matter. So I, I would encourage you, if you're here today and you're like one of those people, you're like, hey, dude, I, I love Jesus and I love singing, but I just have a terrible voice. I only sing in the shower and in my bedroom. That's it. Um, there's people in Chicago singing poorly, really poorly, very loudly about things that don't matter. So I'll tell you that Bethel Church is going to be a place where you can sing at the top of your lungs and be tone deaf, and we don't care. Because another psalm says, make a joyful noise. Not a joyful, perfectly on pitch, only if you can sing. You know, music moves us. When we attach music to an even more powerful truth, the result is explosive praise. That's our prayer, at least. Also, music helps us remember. 
I mean, my, my, all my kids so far have learned their ABCs because of Sesame Street and the song that goes with the ABC song. It helps us remember things. I can't tell you how many people will come up to me when they're going through a hard time and say, hey, that one song that we sang on Sunday has been ministering to me throughout the week. I'm in Walmart stocking shelves at 2 a.m. in the morning, and I'm just thinking about this song that we've been singing. They're not really thinking about the song. You know what they're thinking about? The truth in the song. They're singing that in their head, and they're preaching to themselves in that moment because they remembered through melody and harmony a truth about God. It's a subtle way that worship through singing helps us in worship as life. So this is why we work very hard in the worship ministry to, to do the very best we can to make sure things are very accurate scripturally and say things that matter. We want to sing about God. We want to sing about the gospel. We want to sing about things that are true. And how do we know what is true? We look right here. We look right here. You know, loud clashing symbols in this, in this verse, it was a way back then for the Israelites to clang the symbol and say, I got something important to say. I got something of fame or report. Everybody should listen to me. Music is an arrow that we use to point our hearts to Christ. That's all it is. We want to pick songs that talk about who God is and what God's done, not how we feel about those things. Although feelings are good, emotions are good, I would encourage you to also allow that into your worship time. But we don't want to worship worship. If, you're singing, if we're singing songs, you're kind of not sure what it's talking about or who we're singing to, that's unhelpful for you the rest of your days. So we want to sing songs that say something. Finally, once again, we're reminded to use music because God tells us to right here in Psalm 150. Uh, he knows what we need, that we need to worship him through the use of instruments and melody and harmony. And so we, we're going to do that. Our music is an anthem pointing to Christ. Verse 6, everything that is breathing worships. We're going to kind of end where we started here, right, which is uh, that we are all born worshiping. Everybody in this room or who can hear the sound of my voice right now, uh, you're worshiping something. Even if you aren't walking with Jesus, you are worshiping something. What is that something or someone leading you to? I'll tell you where Christ is going to lead you to, eternal joy with him forever, with him in heaven. So if you're here and you're breathing and you've never considered Christ as your Savior, I would love to encourage you to do that. Because you were born worshiping and your heart was made to worship him alone. If you've never considered Christ, consider him. He loves you. He sees you. He sees what you're in right now. He knows where you are in your journey. And over 2,000 years ago, he sent his one and only son to be born of a virgin, to walk this earth and perfectly live out everything in word and deed and action and thought because we never could. And he died one of the most brutal deaths on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And one day, he's going to come back. One day, we're going to be with him forever. So if you're here this morning, you've never given that breath that you've been given to him in praise, I would encourage you to do it. The Bible tells us all we have to do is to admit that we're a sinner to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he died for us and to confess with our mouth that he is Lord. You can do that at any time. I would encourage you to. 
I, find, I, I, I promise you that he is the one that you've been searching for with all of these other things that you've been trying to fill your life with in worship. He is the one that you were made for. If you do believe this, if you are walking with Jesus and you have been for a long time or maybe a short time, I would encourage you to do what this psalm says, to sing, to praise the Lord. Friend, you've been saved. Something that's easy to forget as you get years into your walk with him. But I pray that we would be a church that never gets over the gospel. You were dead and now you're alive. You were blind and now you see. You were an orphan and now you are a son and a daughter of the most high king. This is your new identity you've been given. And your worship should be aimed at the one that made all of those things possible. I tell you, I'll say this as a side note because I don't have time to get into all the details. But if you read through the whole Psalter, you'll see different um, kinds of ways that we can worship the Lord. You know, and I want Bethel Church to be a worshiping church. I want us to worship him. Not because I'm the worship pastor, but because he's worthy of it. We're not doing our job if we're not into it. So I'd encourage you to read the Psalter and read that you can raise your hands. You can shout for joy. You can clap to the Lord. You can sing. You can make a joyful noise. You can get on your knees. You can raise your gaze to heaven. It's filled with ways, biblically speaking, that he is encouraging us to worship him. Again, however you are in life, that's how I'd encourage you to transition into thinking about how to worship here at Bethel. To go all in. Realize the grace that you've received. Sing loudly. Raise your hands in victory or surrender. Raise your gaze to heaven. Celebrate the grace of God in your life. And respond to the glory of Jesus in song. For he is worthy. If you have breath, praise the Lord. The psalm ends with that phrase. It begins and ends with the same phrase, praise the Lord. However, the last praise the Lord there is actually a future tense. It's talking about a day to come. And concluding the whole Psalter, the author is pointing to a time where this praise will be consummated and continued in the new heavens and the new earth. Check out Revelation 5. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. This is the day that is coming for us. My prayer as a worship pastor here at Bethel would be that our worship, our praise today would align with that praise to come. So just to remind us real quickly, why does this matter? What should we do? Number one, worship is commanded and we need to obey the commandments of God. So it says, praise the Lord. If you're here this morning, you're walking with Jesus. Praise the Lord. If you don't know Jesus, I would love to introduce you to him so that you may do the same. Number two, although worship is commanded in the Bible, for a believer, it shouldn't be drudgery. It shouldn't be a commandment that we're like, oh, we got to do that? Really? It should be something that becomes more and more natural as we walk through our days and breathe in the grace of God. We come on Sunday and we breathe out the praise of God. Every day he's working in your life, protecting you providing for you, procuring your salvation and holding that, sealing it in the spirit for the day that is to come. 
a properly understood theology, study of God, who he is and what he's done, should lead to a powerful doxology, praise coming from his people. And finally, to repeat number one again, one way we can call attention to the glory of the Lord together to praise him is to sing, to do that. So sing full on, without abandon, poorly if you must, as if God is listening and watching. Because friends, we don't sing words to an empty air to hit the ceiling and fall back down. Do you realize this? Because of Christ, we've been entered into the throne room of grace. Every week when we gather, he is on his throne, watching, listening, delighting, and soaking in the praises of his people. Sometimes I will get that image in my head even as I sing to him because that's what's happening. That's the reality. Creation singing, the angels are singing, and once a week together, we get to sing as well. Because he is, because he loves you, he delights in your worship. I pray that we would do that together. Let's pray. So God, I pray that whatever is helpful today would stick deep in our hearts, would make us and conform us into the image of Christ. I pray, God, that you would make us a worshiping church. We're feeble and we're human up here that lead this every week and we do the very best we can. I pray that you would give us wisdom even as we continue to try to build this thing that makes much of Christ. But today, I pray that we would be a people that praise the Lord for his mighty deeds and his excellent greatness, that the gospel would be so massive to us in our hearts that we can do nothing but respond in all-in, full-out, engaged worship with our body, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Would you be with us now, Spirit, as we sing this last song? Would you stir the hearts of what we just talked about in our hearts, the truths, God, of, of who you are? As we praise the name of the Lord, as we walk through the gospel that he died and rose again, would you stir up in our hearts this song of worship, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.